Last week, William Shatner boldly went where no television star has gone before. Well, sort of. 55 years ago, Shatner's Captain Kirk led a starship of galactic hopscotchers. Today, he became Kirk, and at 90, overcome by the moment. I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. All the crew cried after landing. I hope I never recover from this. The voyage was with Blue Origin, the aerospace company started by Amazon founder and billionaire Jeff Bezos. And as far as space travel goes, it was pretty short, about 10 minutes. But now Shatner is the oldest person to travel to space. And he joins a list of people that's actually getting pretty long. The privatization of space travel has opened the doors to the cosmos. You used to have to be a NASA-trained astronaut to go to space. Now, the only barrier seems to be the price of the ticket. Earlier this year, Richard Branson became the first billionaire to send themselves to space when he traveled with a mission funded by his company, Virgin Galactic. Now, I'm an adult in a spaceship with lots of other wonderful adults. And nine days later, Jeff Bezos became the second billionaire to go to space. I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer, because you guys paid for all of this. And even though Tesla owner Elon Musk hasn't traveled beyond the stars yet, his company SpaceX created one of the most powerful rockets in the world, and they've launched several missions into space. Of course, the billionaire space race has its critics. Because space travel is expensive, it's dangerous, it's terrible for the environment, and, well, we are in a climate crisis. Here's what Prince William had to say when he was asked about it by the BBC. We need some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live. Humans have always been fascinated by the cosmos. And ever since we had the technology to actually go and see what's out there, we've been having the same debate. Should we be up there at all? Our obsession with space travel has always gone hand in hand with pop culture. And now that space is more accessible than ever, Hollywood has its sights set on a new, way more expansive studio. Welcome to Pop Culture with the Skip. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, a conversation about our collective fascination with outer space. And how it shows up in our pop culture. The final frontier. For a long time, William Shatner's portrayal of Captain Kirk on the original Star Trek series was the personification of a spaceman. A morally upright, cool, calm, albeit dramatic astronaut who was ready to take on the mysteries of the universe with a trusty crew once a week in 51 minutes or less. It's fitting that 55 years after the show premiered, William Shatner would be the first TV star and the oldest person to travel to space. Star Trek launched onto our televisions three years before the moon landing. And as our curiosity with the cosmos grew, so did our interest in the show. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. But even before we had any mechanisms to actually send someone to space, we were imagining it. The idea of spaceflight had existed for a long time in science fiction, and it was part of popular culture, but it wasn't part of real life. Tiso Mir Harmony is a professor at Georgetown and author of Apollo to the Moon, A History in 50 Objects. She's also the curator of the Apollo Collection at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. So suffice it to say, she knows a lot about early space travel. So there's this really important interplay between pop culture and space exploration, how it played out, and early stories of spaceflight gave people a sense of what 
traveling in space might be like. So even though it hadn't happened at that point, there was this sort of imagination, a sense of what going to the moon might be like. And for a while, our space travel imagination mostly ran wild in books. There was an early French movie, La Voyage dans la Lune, in 1902, and the 1953 movie War of the Worlds, based on the famous H.G. Wells novel. It was about an alien invasion on Earth. This could be the beginning of the end for the human race. For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. But there was nothing else that made a big splash. But then, in the late 50s, something happened that made everybody look up. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik. In 1957, during the height of the Cold War, the Soviet Union launched a Sputnik satellite. It was the first time anyone had successfully put anything in orbit. It shocked the world and scared the hell out of Americans who thought they'd be first. It in part captured a lot of attention because people like Lyndon Johnson, who was a senator at the time, really amplified this idea that Sputnik was a threat, that it might mean the Soviet Union had more advanced technology um, and uh, perhaps so it would be a, was a, more of a military threat to the United States than we originally thought. And so it was a combination of factors. It was covered in the news, but people really questioned whether or not it suggested something about the United States position in relation to the Soviet Union, especially when it came to national security. Now, all of a sudden, space travel was more than just a scientific endeavor. It represented power and world dominance. We talk about the billionaire space race we're in right now, but this set the tone for decades. And in those first few years, the United States was losing badly. The U.S. was really behind when it came to the space race. So the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, so first satellite, but had a lots of lots of firsts before the United States really started catching up. So including the first human in space, the first woman in space, Really lots of impressive first. But what the rest of the world lacked in actual technology and resources, we made up for with our imaginations. By the early 1960s, astronauts, space missions, and mysterious creatures from outer space were showing up in a lot of the things we watched. Captain Anderson to crew, strap down for landing. Altitude, 500 feet. 300, 100, touch. 12 to the Moon came out in 1960. It was a black and white movie about a fictional moon landing with a 12-person crew. The name says it all. Now you can see on your theater screen what this momentous event will be like. There were movies like Phantom Planet that came out in 1961 in which an astronaut is shrunk by an unknown atmosphere on an alien planet. See a six-foot man shrink to six inches before your very eyes. There was Journey to the Seventh Planet, Robertson Crusoe on Mars, Fantastic Voyage, Planet of the Apes, and an Italian movie called Planet of the Vampires, just to name a few. There was the widely panned cult classic Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which came out in 1964. I'm not accustomed to entering people's homes through the door, but you have no chimney. <laughs> Welcome, Santa Claus. We hope you'll make the children on Mars very happy. I'll try, dear lady. I'll try. In 1968, the movie Barbarella launched Jane Fonda into superstardom. She plays a sexy space traveler from the future. Tell me, what is that horrible thing under the floor? That is the Matmos, my child. The Matmos? When you really are from Earth, 
And worldwide, there were lots of movies about scary creatures from outer space. And this new fascination with space wasn't just evident on the big screen. Television took on the cosmos, too, with shows like Star Trek. Live long, Tipao, and prosper. And Lost in Space. Those proven guilty of attempted bribery are thrown into a pit of space vipers. Space vipers. A lot of these portrayals are less than realistic. I mean, Lost in Space is one of the most ridiculous things to ever be on television. But they captured the possibilities of what could be. They reflected the fears of the unknown, but there was a lighthearted feeling to a lot of these productions. They were campy and corny and hard to take seriously. But then, in 1968, the year before the moon landing, one of the most influential movies about space came out. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. From the beginning, the movie was supposed to be a more realistic depiction of space travel. 2001 portrayed space as a dark and ominous place, which set the tone for a lot of space movies after. The visual effects were stunning and very impressive for the time, but critics still didn't know how to feel about the movie. Some of them thought it was slow, others thought it was cold. The cool thing about this movie is how it imagined space travel and the possibilities, like privatized space travel, or even Siri-like technology that has a mind of its own. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. And while Hollywood was busy imagining what space travel might look like, NASA was thinking of all the ways television could help space travel. Tiesel Mirror Harmony again. It is worth noting that throughout the 1960s within the United States, people were skeptical about space exploration and space exploration being a national priority. It was extremely expensive and people thought the government should be focusing on other things like improving housing and civil rights and other areas. And so there was a lot of critique in the United States. More than half of Americans did not think that the country should be sending humans to the moon at that point. So NASA had a lot of PR work to do to get Americans on board in the lead-up to the moon mission and to send the message that they were better than the Soviets. There was a lot of media coverage leading up to the mission. The astronauts were all household names. By that time, their lives were covered extensively in Life magazine with great glossy images, and their families were part of the story. This is a somewhat problematic symbolism or uh, idea that these were, you know, this is what America is. These are who Americans are because they were all uh, white Protestant men who, for the most part, were married. And so it was a very narrow slice of America or what it means to be American. But at the time, this idea that this is what we want to suggest is America. And the coverage of the missions it's something like 94% of American households had their TVs tuned to coverage of the first lunar landing. It's 9.35 Eastern Daylight Time. and Everyone was watching something together, and most of them were watching CBS we coverage. Got word from the spacecraft. Americans had this shared experience, but also people around the world had a shared experience because they were following the flight, too. Uh, congratulatory messages flowing in from kings and 
prime ministers and presidents from around the world. We saw TV anchors who were reporting from London and Tokyo telling you about the audiences there. So it was a great sense that this was something that the whole world was doing together. Boy, look at those pictures. Wow. Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon. On this July 20th, 1969. And it captured the essence of one of the major criticisms of the space program, that it was just too damn expensive, and that we had a lot of other societal problems the money could go to, particularly when so many black Americans were struggling. This was 1969. The civil rights movement was still going on, and at the time, the black poverty rate was around 30%. It's around 20% today. So spending upwards of $25 billion to send white men to space didn't make a lot of sense to people. The day before the moon landing, civil rights leader Ralph Abernathy led a protest in front of the Kennedy Space Center, criticizing the fact that America was going to space while ignoring social injustice. We may go on from this day to Mars and to Jupiter and even to the heavens beyond. But as long as racism, poverty, hunger, and war prevail on the earth, we as a civilized nation have failed. But even with the criticisms, NASA and the Apollo mission cemented themselves into our culture. And while civil rights leaders may have been against the actual moon landing, one very important civil rights icon wasn't against what it did for TV. When the original series of Star Trek first premiered in 1966, it was a ratings failure. Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura, was going to leave the show after the first season, until Martin Luther King Jr. himself asked her not to. It happened at an NAACP fundraiser in 1967. Somebody told her, hey, some guy here wants to meet you. He's your biggest fan. Here she is telling NPR's Michelle Martin about it in 2011. There was the face of Dr. Martin Luther King smiling at me and walking toward me. And he started laughing. By the time he reached me, he said, yes, Miss Nichols, I am your greatest fan. I am that Trekkie. <laughs> and I, I was speechless. She thanked so Dr. King and told him that she planned to leave the show after the first season. He stopped me and said, you cannot do that. And I was stunned. He said, for the first time, we are being seen the world over as we should be seen. He says, do you understand that this is the only show that my wife Coretta and I will allow our little children to stay up and watch? I was speechless. Even though Dr. King was a fan, it wasn't enough to save Star Trek. In 1969, before the Apollo mission ever took off, Star Trek was canceled after three seasons. But then a funny thing happened. After the moon landing, people started to really like Star Trek, which had gone into syndication at this point. And it became a cult hit. 
Think about it. Star Trek has been on television in some form during every decade since it premiered. I don't think we can overemphasize how pivotal Star Trek was to kind of a collective love of space that many of us in society have today. Swapna Krishna covers space, tech, and pop culture. She's also the co-host of the podcast Desi Geek Girls. I talked to her about why Star Trek resonated with audiences and the relationship between NASA and the show. Every Star Trek show is for the most part, advanced for their times in terms of inclusivity and diversity and showing what that means on the screen, but it's they're all product of their time. There are so many stories about, you know, like Whoopi Goldberg talked a lot about Star Trek was the show that she was allowed to watch at home because it showed a black woman on screen who wasn't a maid. I think it's pivotal in those ways in terms of changing the fabric of society, but also in terms of the way we view space. I know a lot of people who are working at NASA today or working as engineers, working at SpaceX, working at these private companies, you know, Blue Origin, were inspired to do what they do because they watched Star Trek as a kid and they wanted that future. I do what I do because I watched Star Trek as a kid and I knew that I wanted to do something professionally with space. You touched on something that I think is really interesting, and it is this idea that like these shows were really progressive for their times, and in a lot of ways were used to sort of push boundaries. One of the first interracial kisses mm-hmm. happened in 1968 mm-hmm. on Star Trek. Yep. And so I'm wondering why you think that is, like why these shows presented an opportunity to push those boundaries in a way that maybe other shows couldn't. Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, had this vision of inclusivity and men and women working side by side, people of all races working side by side. Had the show not been set in space, not been set in the future, I don't think they would have been able to do it. Because it's a future, because it's kind of a space fantasy, they were able to push boundaries, I think, in a way that wouldn't have worked otherwise. So these are a lot of the sort of hopeful things that came out of these shows. Were there any ways in which our fears about outer space or even our fears about the Soviet Union beating us, were there any ways that that was reflected in pop culture examples or on Star Trek? Ooh, yes. Uh, the Klingons. <laughs> in, the, in the original series, the Klingons are the arch enemy and they are this like threatening presence and they were written as a reflection of like kind of the U.S.-Soviet tensions. And it's super interesting to watch the series and watch the way they go from enemy. If you watch the Star Trek movies, there's a lot of conflict and tension with the Klingons. And then in Star Trek VI, peace. It's all about signing a peace treaty. And then you fast forward 70 years in the Star Trek timeline to the next generation. And there's a Klingon serving on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, the flagship of the Federation. And let's talk a little bit about the relationship that NASA had with Star Trek. So it wasn't just that Star Trek and some of these other shows about space travel were drawing inspiration from real life. Real life also like leaned into the relationship. So mm-hmm. um, Michelle Nichols, uh, who we talked about earlier, who played Lieutenant Uhura, she like helped with the NASA recruitment yeah. campaign later on. Mae Jemison guest starred in an episode of Star Trek, yep. which I um, remember that episode. <laughs> yes. You know, Star Trek's the best thing that ever happened to NASA, to be frank. And luckily, they have really realized that. And NASA's very much embraced the Star Trek family. There's a Voyager episode where they go hunting for, like, a NASA probe. Ares 4 was piloted by Lieutenant John Kelly. 
His ground team, astronauts Rose Kumagawa and Andrei Novakovich, were close to completing their survey mission when Kelly reported an object closing on his position. Then he and the command module disappeared off NASA's LIDAR scopes. And into the history books. And so it's super interesting to see NASA take that and just be like, this is a gift. So when we're talking about like Star Trek and the diversity on the show and how at the time, some of the things they did, their casting choices was really pushing the boundaries and was very progressive for the time, right? And I think that like includes like the racial diversity of the actors. Mm-hmm. So to have a Black woman lieutenant on the crew as a major part of the show was a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing that stands out to me for a lot of like sci-fi movies and shows I see now that are made within like the last however many years is there's still that like one Black or brown yes. person in the crew. And I'm like... Do people not think we're going to make it to the future? Like, what's going on here? What do you think about that? Oh, my God. I'm absolutely the same page as you. It makes me so mad. One thing I will shout out Star Trek Discovery for, the amount of diversity on that show and the intersectional diversity, too. They're doing a really good work. To me, it's one of the first ones that actually looks realistic. I think finally maybe Hollywood's on board with the realistic view of the future, which is that it's not going to just be one person of color and Six white people? (laughs) Right. That's not realistic. You're always like, where's this person's family members? Like, where where are their friends? They're the one person of color who made it to the future? This makes no sense. And it's like five men and two women. And it's like, really? So we've mostly talked about how space travel was reflected in our pop culture during the Cold War years. Of course, Star Wars came out in the 70s, and it also had that message of diplomacy and democracy beating evil. But over the years, like our movies and television about space has started to really move away from those things. And now that we know even more about outer space and we can recreate that through visual effects, space actually looks different in the things we watch. It's dark, it's scary, it's more realistic. And even our modern depictions of space are more likely to explore human dynamics. I'm thinking about movies like Gravity or even Apollo 13 they're more likely to convey our fears about climate change. And there are so many movies about humans either living in space colonies or looking for ways to live on other planets. I'm thinking about Interstellar, The Martian, even WALL-E is about humans leaving the Earth. There's even a movie called Elysium about rich people going to go live in space. Sound familiar? I talked to Swapna about this, the ways pop culture today continues to reflect our dreams and fears about space. The first show that came to mind when you were talking about that was like Battlestar Galactica, the reboot from Ron Moore, which is a beautiful show. It is so good. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to rewatch it. It's just, it's so grim. And I think in a lot of ways, space travel, like during the Apollo era, was American propaganda. And it was designed to show how great Americans are. Astronauts are expected to be Boy Scouts, even though they were very much not. I think we've come a long way from then in terms of the way we view space, but also the way we view, interact with, and what we demand of the shows we watch, especially right now in the golden age of TV and movies too. We want more complicated storytelling. We want to explore failure. And then I think on top of that, just we know more about space. Back then, we were a lot further away from it, a lot of ways than we are now. As you know, you mentioned, space is not accessible yet. You know, the people going are still, in a lot of cases, millionaires, billionaires, but it's getting there. And so now space feels more immediate. And then maybe we're all saying like, oh, oh, it's not as inviting and welcoming as we thought 
or we hoped it might be. And now that the barrier to space truly is just the price of the ticket, Hollywood has its sights set on the studio in the stars. So yeah, the fact that we're seeing billionaires floating in zero gravity on the regular doesn't mean we've busted into some new reality where space is massively more accessible. But it does signal a big shift. Space isn't just for government investment in science experiments anymore. From just a pure drama standpoint, there's a lot that you can do once you can go to space, even if you're not a trained astronaut. Eric Cohn is the VP of Strategy at IndieWire, where he also covers film and television. I called him up so he could help us break down the brave new world of movies and TV that's not just about space, it's made in space. First up, Universal Studios is teaming up with Elon Musk and director Doug Lyman, who did the Born Identity movies, among other things, to send Tom Cruise to space. We don't know exactly when this project is going to come to fruition, and it is shrouded in levels of secrecy that I'm sure will take a long time to, re to reveal themselves. But what we know is that SpaceX is willing to provide its Dragon capsule, which can get to the International Space Station, for anybody who can afford to get on it. So if that's Tom Cruise and a studio providing the many millions of dollars necessary to do it, then why not? Now, we know that Tom Cruise is willing to put himself in bodily harm because he does all his own stunts. He's hurt himself many times in the Mission Impossible movies. So it's not surprising that he would be willing to put himself in danger to tell a story and, and stay on the ISS, on the International Space Station, as he seems to be planning to do. That's what we know. What we can assume is that Tom Cruise and Doug Lyman are going to fly up to the space station with a camera, maybe some sound equipment, and shoot some scenes. Now, we don't know exactly how much that is, but usually shooting a movie takes more than a week, so maybe this is the climax, but it's going to take some time to understand the full picture. And Russia is beating us to the punch here once again. A Russian film crew just returned to Earth after filming in space. It's a similar kind of setup. It's one actress and a director. You can't get too many people up there, so you're sort of limited in terms of what you can pull off. But you know, the Russian film industry is formidable in the sense that it's government funded and, and, and the government supports it. So they have a different set of resources they can tap into to fast track a project like this. And of course, there's reality TV. Discovery has plans for a show called Who Wants to Be an Astronaut? It was created by Mark Burnett, the same guy who came up with The Apprentice. So Who Wants to Be an Astronaut is quite fascinating to me because it taps into this bigger idea of going to space as fundamentally exciting no matter who you are and where you're from, as opposed to somebody who, say, always wanted to be an astronaut for scientific reasons. So what we're seeing now is that there's a normalization of the idea of being an astronaut and the very concept of the job could be more expansive. And as you might guess, all of this is expensive. But so are a lot of movies that don't involve actual rockets. Ultimately, we're talking about several hundred million dollars as sort of like a starting point to get people to space. So that's why it is very cost prohibitive. But once we know that that's the cost, the question is, well, who can we send? In the case of the Tom Cruise project, what we're seeing is, okay, that's not a billionaire, it's an actual studio that is investing its money in the same way it would invest in a $100 million film production. So then the cost starts to look similar to other kinds of costs that we see across the industry, and it actually fits in 
with a strategy that's on a continuum with other kinds of storytelling. So that's where we start to see why Tom Cruise can go to space and probably won't be the last actor to do so. Cone said, despite the cost and the fact that it's still, you know, kind of dangerous to go into space, it's not surprising that Hollywood wants to push the envelope this way. When you put something in front of the camera and there's no barrier between what's in front of the camera and what we see on the other side, the recorded footage, it's just more exciting, which is why there is this desire, I think, by a lot of people to not rely on expensive CGI to create things that you can create in real life. It's just much more involving because you know your mind is not having to suspend disbelief so that, you know, it's something like Gravity is a riveting movie to watch. But we also know in a lot of situations that we're, we're not actually watching uh, Sandra Bullock, you know, f- careen through space at, by the way, a speed that would not have made any sense for her to survive. So if you see somebody actually floating, I think it just registers as, as more realistic, more authentic. And hopefully that also sustains the sense of drama, or thrills or whatever emotion it is that they're looking to convey there. People always take risks in this business that don't totally add up and could go really bad. And a lot of people could lose money doing them. Or you could happen into some new reason to go see movies in a theater. I mean, the IMAX experience, the biggest of the big screen experiences is something that you just cannot do at home. So why would you spend upwards of $20 a person to go have that kind of experience? It's to get something that you just can't replicate any other way. So that's why we do see a real pressure to up the ante for how we tell stories on the big screen. If the only way that you could see Tom Cruise launch into space and float around on the ISS is to spend 20 bucks, well, that's a huge win for the future of the multiplexes. And maybe we'll see a lot more endeavors like it. We know now from looking back at decades of TV and movies that pop culture shapes our ideas of space just as much as space shapes our pop culture. So I asked Cone, What is this new, hyper-realistic era of space media going to mean for our relationship with the cosmos? Well, I hope that on the one hand, it normalizes it, and on the other hand, it gets more people excited about just how big the universe is. And our solar system, which is incredibly accessible relative to the rest of the universe, uh, because it, it is an important distinction in the sense that for billions of years, as long as we've had human beings on this Earth, most of them have taken for granted that the Earth is a very small piece of the equation. And the truth is, from my standpoint, if you can appreciate a walk in the park, if you like waking up to a beautiful sunrise with mountains and birds flying around and appreciating the natural splendor of the universe in that way, then you should also be able to appreciate how much that is a small piece of the larger equation of our existence. And by going to space, you can actually start to understand our world as being much larger than that. And that there is a reality and there is a future where we can become an interplanetary species. And we should be careful not to use that as an excuse to just destroy the Earth. But the Earth is a small piece of the equation and it is valuable to think of our opportunities as being much larger than just this one little rock that we've evolved on. So big picture, I do think that Hopefully, as more people go to space, we're going to start to understand that it's a big, big universe out there, and with the right technology, we can get to it. 
who knows, maybe we'll be recording podcasts on the International Space Station next. And that's it for us this week. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with a great team who makes it all possible. The show's producer is Alicia Key. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Our director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Big thanks to Professor Tiesel Muir Harmony, Swapna Krishna, and Eric Cohn for talking to us. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. And we'll see you right back here next week.